0: Now, have you ever tried to uh, do a deal with God? You know, when we are desperate, sometimes that can be our instinct, right? To try to strike some kind of deal with God. Now, you know this uh, guy called Martin Luther, a very famous uh, person who started the Reformation in the 16th century? Well, actually, he didn't start off wanting to become a church minister. He never wanted to be a theologian. See, what happened is this. He was a law student in university and uh, he was very happy doing that. That's what his father wanted him to do. But one day as he was walking back to the university, it was a very heavy thunderstorm and a, a ball of lightning struck right next to him. And he was so scared, he cried out to... Well, in those times, the, the Catholic practice was to uh, cry to the saints. So he actually said, Help, St. Saint Anne, Saint Anne you know, save me and I'll become a monk. And actually his life was spared. So even though he really regretted saying that, he had no choice. He felt he made a binding vow, and he actually gave up his law studies and went and became a monk. Now, maybe none of us would do such a thing, but uh, a more recent example: I was reading uh, the Washington Post online, okay, and I I, wrote, I read about this writer who had a loved one, and you know, she, that person was very sick, and this writer, I think, is also uh, also Catholic. And she said, well, I I did a deal with God. I said, I'll go to church every day and light a candle and say my rosary prayers. And I promise also to be a better person, to be less judgmental, to be more patient, so that God will in turn heal that person, my loved one. Should we do deals with God? Well, in today's passage, obviously, you we realize that that is what Jephthah does, isn't it? He makes a vow asking for God's help and offers something in return. And we're going to see later on if that is the right thing to do. But before we get there, we have to start from the very beginning. Okay? So let's look first at the beginning of chapter 10 and find out about this Jephthah person. Now over the, over the last few weeks, uh, we've been looking at uh, Israel's continuing cycle of sin, then punishment then salvation, then back again to sin, punishment and salvation and so on. Each time, God would save his people, those people that were oppressed, whether he used Othniel or Ehud, Deborah, Barak, Gideon, God would save them every time. But then they would just go straight back to their sinning again. And when we were reading the passages now, I wonder whether you had this deja vu experience, right? Where you got the sense, "Oh, oh, here we go all over again. Because In Judges 10, we see exactly the same thing happening. So I want you to keep your Bibles open at the passage and uh, look at chapter 10 now. And let me read to you from chapter 10 verse 6. Verse 6 says, Again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites and the gods of the Philistines. Now, throughout this book, we keep hearing again and again, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. You no, know, but this time it's worse. This time we are actually given a description of what that means because all the other times we are never told exactly what they did. But here, we are shocked to hear that they worshipped so many different idols, isn't it? The Baal not enough, the Ashtoreths, the Aram, Sidon, Moab, Ammonites, Philistines, all of these different gods Whatever gods they could possibly chase after, they were going after. Okay? Whether the gods were the peoples to the north, to the east, to the south, these are all the gods they worshipped. So, when it comes to finding new idols to worship, they are so creative, isn't it? But when it comes to worshipping the true God, who keeps saving them again and again, they just can't do it. And verse 6 goes on to say, And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served Him, He became angry with them. And he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. See, God's response to Israel's sin is great anger. God is very angry and God punished them by letting the Philistines and the Ammonites attack them. Now again, this time is worse, isn't it? This is the first time that two enemies are attacking them at the same time. The Philistines from the west and the Ammonites from the east. And, and this time they are focusing their attack on a, a region in Israel called Gilead. Okay, I've got a map up here for you. Sorry, I forgot to bring my pointer. But basically, uh, the east side, you see the the, the Salt Sea, the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee up there. The, the river Jordan runs between those. And everything to the east, okay, where uh, the Mount Reuben, Gad, and the southern part of the East Manasseh is all Gilead. Okay, that region is Gilead. And the top region is called Bashan. Alright, so the the enemy, Ammon, you can see Ammon to the far right, he's focusing his attack on that Gilead region on the east. And not just that, it says in the verse that they crossed the Jordan River to attack Judah, Benjamin, and Ephraim as well. So they're actually attacking a huge area in in Israel. And this went on for 18 long years, 18 long years of attack. And so in verse 10... The Israelites cried out to the Lord. They said, we have sinned against you, forsaking our gods and serving the Baals. Sound familiar? Yes, because that's what they've been doing again and again. Every time they are in trouble, they cry out to the Lord. And this time we are told the content of their prayer. They say, oh Lord, you know we have sinned. We know we have sinned. We shouldn't have turned away from you. We shouldn't have served the Baals. So please, you know, save us. But God didn't buy it, right? It says in verse 11, The Lord replied, When the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you are in trouble. So God is saying, you know, your track record is not very good, uh. Don't try and fool me again. Okay, you're just gonna do exactly what you did the last time and the last time and last time. Every time you cry to me, I save you, and then what happens? You go straight back again to the to those other gods. You know, you if, you know if you think that they are so great, you keep going up to them, why don't you go and ask them to save you? You know, I'm not the only god, right there are other gods, go and ask them, right? Don't keep looking for me every time you're in trouble. But in verse fifteen, the Israelites said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. And then they got rid of the foreign gods and among them and served the Lord. See, Israel prayed and it sounds so repentant, so genuine, so humble. Lord, we have, we have really sinned. We know we deserve to be punished. Now do whatever you want to us, but just don't do it now. Do it next time. Now you save us. Okay. Uh, next time, whatever you want to do, you just do it, okay? It's just like uh, some kids are very good at holding off punishment, right? Some kids are very good at uh, manipulating their parents. So they'll know the sweet talk and, uh, you know, make their parents say, okay, lah, it's fine, it's fine. Or maybe they can cry their crocodile tears or, you know, they can somehow talk their way out of it. Okay? And Israel is per- is very good at doing this or they think they're very good at doing this. See, they... They think that they know how to push God's buttons so that they can get the result that they want. And you know, adults can also be like that. You know, recently, I went back to KL and I, I met this lady uh, who could really talk very well, talk very sweetly, uh, very convincingly, promise this, promise that. But she, I found out later that she actually is all for herself and wanting her own gain and uh, only interested in herself and nobody, other, uh, nobody else's interest. So she can talk very well, but actually doesn't deliver at all. Now, we, we can't stand people like that. But you know what? We can be like that too with God. Because that is how we often treat God. You know, when life is smooth sailing for us, God is the furthest thing from our minds. Because we just want to live for ourselves and for now. And then when times are bad, oh, God suddenly comes in the picture. We want God to help us, isn't it? We start being serious about praying. We start being serious about seeking God. When You know, Like, when I was a uni student, you know, guess guess when is the time that I prayed the most? (laughs) Yeah, exactly, right? Exam time. Okay, you see, you don't really want a God in the good times, but you want a God in the bad times, right? You want God to be the means for you to achieve your own goals, but you don't want God to be your goal. So maybe your life is smooth sailing right now. You know, you're very happy with the way things are going. Well, be careful. That you know you're not just a Christian in name and for show. don't just say the right things and look really good when your life is actually full of hidden disobedience and compromise. So let me ask, have we hardened our hearts against God and think that oh we can just count on his help when we need him yeah, He's a merciful God. No, do we despise God like that do we think that we can take advantage of his mercy? Do we think he's somebody that we can trifle with? Don't take for granted that God will always have mercy but be careful because one day God's patience will run out with those people who despise him and who take advantage of his compassion So the Israelites tried to take advantage of God and they didn't have any true repentance They were just like playing a part they thought they could fool God Well the surpri- the, the surprising thing here though is what is in verse 16 this Second part, it says that God could bear Israel's misery no longer. See, the surprising thing is that God took pity on these people. Now surely He knew that their hearts were fickle. Surely He knew it was just temporary you know, repentance. They were not really that sincere. And yet, He had mercy. He had mercy on them. It's not because God is easily duped. It's not because He doesn't know what they're like. But it's because He... It is in His very nature to have mercy. He's a compassionate and a loving God. A God who remembers the promises that He made to them. A God who stands by His commitment to them. That's why He could bear their misery no longer. And so if you're not someone who despises God, you're not someone who takes Him for granted, but you you feel so inadequate, you, you despair over your sin. And you think that I'll never be good enough for God. Well, here... It's a great encouragement for us because we fail God again and again and our faith is so weak sometimes, our repentance so superficial and at the best of times our motives are mixed. But God knows what we are like and God knows the sin in our hearts and yet He wants to be in relationship with us. God doesn't need us but yet He has chosen us To be his people. He's a God of compassion and love and mercy. And we can come confidently to God. Now in God's love and compassion, God raises up a deliverer for Israel. And his name is Jephthah. So in chapter 11, we read that Jephthah is a mighty warrior and a Gileadite. But there was one major flaw, one major problem. He was an illegitimate son. Now, even today, you may look uh, disapprovingly at somebody who is an illegitimate child. Okay, uh, I don't think that uh, somebody who's you know, an illegitimate child will probably be elected the president of the United States or maybe a prime minister here. Okay, but the stigma in those days was much worse than that. Now, you can imagine people talking about him. this Jephthah guy. You know, he looks really good. He's a good fighter. Okay, I grant him that, but let me tell you a secret. You know, his father had him out of wedlock, and it wasn't just uh, some kind of normal affair. It was a prostitute. You know, he's the son of a prostitute. You know, and so you wouldn't be surprised if Jephthah never got any respect in society, and he was never accepted by the establishment, no matter how mighty a warrior that he was. And just like many of our, um, you know, dropouts and our rejects in society today. He went away and gathered a group of gangsters around him, right? He became a paikya, basically. Right? It says here in the NIV, the older NIV translation, it says, gather a group of adventurers around him. But actually, adventurers here means like outcasts, misfits, you no know, people who have nothing better to do, okay? So he became the ringleader of a gang. And he proved himself in the only way that he knew how. He became very good at fighting. And he let his sword do the talking. And because he had a, a reputation for being such a mighty warrior, those Gileadites who had previously chased him away, that is his family, his own family, didn't want him to share the inheritance, they chased him away. Now the Gileadite elders come and look for him. Okay? They came and looked for him in verse 4. If you look at chapter 11 verse 4, because they needed somebody to fight the Ammonites. So they say, hey, Jephthah, we've got an offer that you can't refuse. Okay, we need somebody to fight the Ammonites. And we know you've got really good, fantastic Kung Fu skills. So we're going to give you the position of commander. Okay, Jephthah, hmm, I don't buy that. You know, you drove me away last time. Now you need me, you want me back. Not so easy. Why should I help you? Uh, come on, Jephthah, you know, we are not proud like, of what happened last time. But let's put the past behind. Okay, if, if commander is not good enough for you, how about we give you head? You be be the Prime Minister, lah, okay, you I everything can negotiate one, right or not? Okay? Okay? Not bad, not bad. Head over Gilead. But how do I know that you're gonna keep your promise? Ayah Jephthah. of course God is our witness. We want you to be the head. In fact, we're gonna make you head right now before you even win the victory. We are so sure that you are very good at fighting. Can you see how manipulative these elders are, right? They they are trying to use him trying to make him do what they want but they don't have many cards to play unfortunately because they really need him and so Jephthah gets the better of them and he becomes the head over them and they have to eat humble pie but see the point of this is that we see that the elders of Jeph, uh, the elders of Gilead are treating Jephthah just like Israel is treating God it's the same thing see normally they don't want anything to do with him They Normally they don't want to worry about him, but now they need him. So what do they do? They kind of reluctantly go and, okay, you can be our head. They try to do that. And that's what Israel is doing too. And this is reflected in how the elders of uh, Gilead are treating Jephthah. So now that's done. Jephthah is the head, he's the commander. He gets to work. So chapter 11, verse 12 onwards. And he sends messengers to this Ammonite king. And he asks this king, why? why are you attacking us? And the Ammonite king says, well, because you took our land. That's why we're attacking you, so give it back. And Jephthah says, now don't try to you know, rewrite history. Huh? Don't try to pull the wool over my eyes. We didn't take your land. And he actually gives them a very long history lesson. Now, it might be a bit confusing for you. Okay, So, let me try to summarize for you what Jephthah said. Okay, it goes back to even before the time when Israel came out of egypt okay so uh this land here that i said was gilead previously belonged to moab and ammon see moab on the bottom and ammon on the side they actually owned gilead last time and if you remember back to genesis moab and ammon are actually brother nations because why they they were both descended from the daughters of lot okay which is abraham's nephew and so uh, they owned that land long ago but before Israel came out of Egypt, another group called the Amorites, not to be confused with the Ammonites, they are Amorites, okay, they conquered the land of Gilead and took it from the king of Moab. Okay, so when Israel came out of Egypt, Egypt is sort of down here somewhere, they, they had to go to the promised land. And they, they tried to go through Edom and Moab, but they refused to let them go. So they went around the side, and then they had to go through the land of, that was owned the Gilead that was owned by the Amorites in order to cross the Jordan River but the king, of, uh, the king of the Amorites was called Sihon or Sihon okay he refused to let them enter his land and they had no intention of taking his land but uh, you know he came he brought a huge army to fight the Israelites so God gave the victory to Israel and so Israel took over the whole land of Gilead and not just that to the north another king came and fought them and he took over the whole land of uh, Bashan on the top so that region east of the Jordan all now belongs to Israel. Okay. So now the Ammonites are trying to reclaim this land. But Jephthah is not buying it. He says, you know, we won we this land, okay, not because we were the aggressors, we were attacked. And so it is ours, God has given it to us. Okay. And secondly, that was 300 years ago and now you are kicking up a stink. when That was actually such a long time ago, you have never mentioned anything until now. Okay, the king of Moab has never said anything and you know, because he knows that it's, it's not, the land is not his, it's ours. So basically he's trying to say that we own this land and not you Ammonites. Now, Jephthah is not, it's quite amazing, isn't it, that Jephthah knows his stuff. I mean, you expect a, a, a gangster right, not knowing a lot of stuff, but this guy knows his history from 300 years ago, you know. And not just that, he knows his theology. You see, in verse 24, what does he say? Whatever the Lord our God has given us, we will possess. You see, he knows that it's not just an accident of history. He knows that this land is given by God, and therefore we will possess it. And in verse 27, he says, Let the Lord, the judge, decide the dispute this day between the Israelites and the Ammonites. Bravo, wonderful speech, full of the right. You know, theology, this guy can really talk, he knows his stuff really well. He even knows theology. Good. But the question is, does he really believe his own words? Do his words reflect his heart? That is the question. And now let's take the story from uh, verse 29. Let me read verse 29. And then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. And then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon Jephthah and that is a clear indication that God is with Jephthah and God is on his side now you see the battle is not the focus of the passage here now the author here the author of the judges spends only two or three verses at most summarizing the battle you know, unlike many of the other battles that he describes in huge detail the battle is a foregone conclusion he's definitely going to win no problem instead he wants us to focus on something else he wants us to focus on the vow that Jephthah made see Jephthah makes a vow that if God gives him the victory he is going to sacrifice as a burnt offering whatever comes out of the house first to meet him now what did he expect that will come out of the house you know, was it a bull or a goat you know, maybe an animal sacrifice well maybe but you see the word here which says whatever comes out it can also mean whoever comes out because in the original Hebrew language, there's no distinction between whatever and whoever is the same word. And well, I think that it's more likely that Jephthah anticipated a human sacrifice. Because if you come out to meet somebody, it sounds intentional, isn't it? You don't expect a, a bull or a goat to come out to meet you, right? So, you know, I mean, if he, and, you see, and also if he intended that it was an animal, well, he would be... Make it really, really clear. You don't want to make a, a, a mistake in making vows like this to God, right? You be very clear. Okay, God, you know, I'm talking about animals here, okay, not about human beings. So, now some some people, some commentators believe. Oh, yeah, I don't think Jephthah could sacrifice a human being. You know, he's he's a good guy. But come on, he knows his Bible so well. His speech is so impressive, and he's a hero of the faith in Hebrews 11. That's true. But you know what? I think that is that is exactly the point here. There is an inconsistency between Jephthah's words and Jephthah's actions you see what he says does not tally with what he does and that is the whole problem and that can be our problem too sometimes so probably Jephthah knew that human sacrifice is wrong according to the Bible God had forbidden it very very clearly and if he knew history from 300 years ago most likely he would know he would know the law so on the next slide uh, these are words from Leviticus God's law The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, Any Israelite or any alien living in Israel who gives any of his children to Molech must be put to death. The people of the community are to stone him. I will set my face against that man and I will cut him off from my people for by giving his children to Molech he has defiled my sanctuary and profaned my holy name. Molech is the name of one of those Canaanite gods or idols. And guess which nation worships Molech? Well, let me show you in the next verse from 1 Kings, next page. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. You see, Jephthah's neighbors to the east, the Ammonites, his enemies, they are the ones who worship this god Molech. And they, how do they worship this god? Part of their worship is to sacrifice their children to this god so jephthah knows he's not supposed to do human sacrifice but he lives among a people who he sees sacrifice their children to Molech. and maybe he reasoned to himself yes i know that god uh, doesn't want human sacrifice but this is not a normal situation this is a A desperate and exceptional situation that we are in. And desperate times call for desperate measures. Okay, So I must do something to make God sit up and take notice. And I must give God a very good inducement to help us. Now isn't that how pagans think? You see, what is pagan worship? Pagan worship is not relating to God in trust and in obedience. But pagan worship is about knowing how to get the gods to work for you. You see, you go to the temple, not because you really want to worship this God, because you need something from this God. And if this God can't give it to you, go and look for another God who can give it to you, isn't it? Ultimately, pagan worship is about me and what I want. And the difference between true faith and pagan thinking is that in true faith, we relate to God on God's terms. See, God takes the initiative in giving us His grace And we respond to his grace in trust and obedience. That is true faith. But in pagan mentality, we relate to God on our terms. See, we take the initiative, we set the the agenda, and we expect God to perform for us. See, in true faith, we are serving God. But in pagan thinking, God is serving us. And when Jephthah was desperate... Even though he knew God's word, his mentality was not true faith in God, but pagan thinking. See, Even though he knew his theology, when push came to shove, his true theology was Ammonite theology. He knew God's commands in theory, but when he came to the crunch, his default setting was Canaanite. See, Jephthah did not have enough faith and confidence in God. He should have known better. I mean, he should have believed his own words that he spoke to that, Canaanite, to that Ammonite king. If God is the one who gives the land to Israel, if God is truly the judge between Israel and the Ammonites, then surely God will give the victory to Israel. He doesn't have to buy it. He doesn't have to offer God anything to get victory. We should have known that God will surely keep his promises because he's a faithful God and he's a just judge. So aren't we sometimes like Jephthah you know, have, 2? Haven't we all tried to twist God's arm at some point or other in our prayers? You know, even if it's, oh God, heal me and I'll believe in you. Okay, if this God doesn't heal my sickness, I won't believe this God. God sort out this problem for me, I'll read the Bible more. Help me to ace my exams and I'll come to youth group more. See, all this kind of thinking stems from one fundamental problem. That is, we don't trust God. We don't really believe that God has our interests at heart. You see, we think, if I don't look after myself, who's going to look after me? So I have to take matters into my own hands. I don't like being helpless and so, for us, prayer is not crying out to God's grace. Prayer is not depending on God's goodness. But prayer is doing deals with God. See, prayer is just another thing that we can do to get what we want. And usually, prayer is the last thing on the list. See, let me tell you something. God doesn't need anything from us. There's nothing that we can give God. To buy his help. No. Faith means just being helpless before God. Throwing ourselves upon his mercy. Trusting that he is always good and gracious to us. And knowing that there's nothing that we can offer in exchange for anything. When you pray, just tell God what you need. And surrender yourself to his will. And whatever God gives to you is his best for you. Trust him. See, Jephthah tried to negotiate with God, something that God had already promised to give. And not only that, he offered to give God something that God hates and God forbids. He got what he wanted, God gave him the victory. And so, probably after months of fighting all these battles, he finally gets to go home. And as he walks nearer and nearer to the gate of his house, in his mind he's thinking about that vow he made so many months ago. And he's thinking, who is going to be this unlucky person who's going to end up as my burnt offering? You know, with any luck probably it'll be my mother in law or you know, uh, whoever else, okay? My wife will next me all the time, or I don't know, okay. And then shock and horror, isn't it, when he sees his daughter, his only child he's emphasized so many times, only child, he had no son or no daughter, his only child. Dancing out to meet him. She's so innocent, so glad to see him come back safe and sound. And he couldn't believe his eyes. But this is not a bad dream. This is real. You see, he has to sacrifice, he has to burn his own daughter to God. And so do you see that Jephthah's vow, his failure to trust God, had tragic consequences. Tragic consequences for him because he lost his only child. But the one who suffered most was his innocent, unsuspecting daughter who was cut down in the prime of her life. She had everything to look forward to in life. Now, no husband, no children, only the expectation to die a cruel and unnecessary death. And all this taken away because her father behaved like an Ammonite. See, the last incident now recorded about Jephthah's career is in chapter 12 now this is about the Ephraimites okay? the Ephraimites I- in that map previously uh, it would be the tribe on the, on the west okay? that is uh, on the other side of the Jordan River now these, Ammonite, uh, these Ephraimites okay, you can see Ephraim there uh, they seem to be uh, you've met them before in the Gideon story okay? so if you turn back to chapter 8 in Judges okay, if you look at chapter 8 that is when Gideon was the character in the story let me read to you from chapter 8, verse 1. Now the Ephraimites asked Gideon, Why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call us when you went to fight Midian? And they criticized him sharply. But Gideon answered them, What have I accomplished compared to you? Aren't the gleanings of Ephraim's grapes so much better than the full grape harvest of Abiezer? God gave Oreb and Zeeb, the Midianite leaders, into your hands. What was I able to do compared to you? And at this, their resentment against him subsided. It seems like these Ephraimites are very difficult people. Okay? They're very self-important, proud people. Uh, they don't like playing second fiddle. They want to be the leaders. They want to look good. Okay, They want to be always on top. So because Gideon didn't call them to fight the battle, they are offended. They came to fight him. And uh, Gideon was very diplomatic. He was very humble and gentle in his answer. And that's how he managed to avoid war with them. And now they're doing the same routine to Jephthah again. You have a replay. So if you turn to chapter 12 now. Chapter 12 verse 1. The men of Ephraim called out their forces, crossed over to Zephon and said to Jephthah, Why did you go to fight the Ammonites without calling us to go with you? We're going to burn down your house over your head. Jephthah answered, I and my people were engaged in a great struggle with the Ammonites, and although I called you, didn't save me out of their hands. When I saw that you wouldn't help I took my life in my hands and crossed over to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gave me the victory over them. Now why have you come up to f- today to fight me? Jephthah then called together the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim. The Gileadites struck them down because the Ephraimites had said, You Gileadites are renegades from Ephraim and Manasseh. See the Ephraimites are once again acting like bullies. Instead of thanking Jephthah for saving them from the Ammonites, they want to burn his house down. Okay, they call them names. Are you Gileadites? You're nothing, like, you know, you're no, a good-for-nothing tribe, you know. We Ephraim, we Manasseh. Manasseh is the brother tribe of Ephraim. See, they were big bullies. But notice here that Jephthah takes a very different approach from Gideon before him. See, Jephthah is not as accommodating as Gideon, right? Gideon is a statesman, Jephthah is the paikia, okay? Diplomacy is not in his dictionary, Okay. He hates people looking down on him. So, you want to fight Zed? You want to fight? Okay, let me show you who is boss. I'm going to teach you a lesson that you'll never forget. So he kills 42,000 Ephraimites. Now, 42,000, that is a huge number. Okay? In the book of Numbers, uh, there was a census taken. And just before entering the promised land, there were 32,500 Ephraimite fighting men. Only thirty-two thousand uh, a few generations back. Now he kills forty-two thousand, which is more than all of the enemies killed in the whole book of Judges combined. Jephthah kills more of the brothers than the enemy. Yes, he was provoked by them, but he should have shown restraint because of who they were. So you can see how things have deteriorated in the book of Judges. See, it started. The book of Judges started in chapter one with two. Brother tribes Judah and Simeon fighting shoulder to shoulder against the enemy, and now two brother tribes are fighting each other to the death, and Gileadites are slaughtering their brother Ephraimites without mercy. Now Gideon, for all his faults, never killed his fellow Israelites. Yes, he did kill the men of one town, if I remember correctly, but Jephthah kills the men of one tribe. See what we can learn here is that a broken. Vertical relationship with God Always leads to problems In our horizontal relationships With our brothers and sisters Now from the way that we treat Our brothers and sisters in Christ That is a reflection of our heart Before God See God in the Old Testament And God now commands That we love him with all of our heart And we love our neighbor As ourselves And he says In the New Testament in the book of First uh, John, that if we do not love our brother or our sister, then we do not love God. So do you love your brother and sister in Christ? Or are you at war with them? You know, If you are at war with your brother and sister, repent and forgive them. Be reconciled to them. Get your heart right with them. So, As we conclude today, let's ask what are the lessons that we can learn from Jephthah? How is it relevant? How is this ancient story relevant to us today? Well, firstly, we can see that Jephthah is such an imperfect deliverer. He's got so many flaws. Yes, he delivered Israel from the enemy, but you may may notice that with the earlier judges, every time the, the story of the judge comes to an end, he says, and the land had peace for. X number of years, right? Do you see that here? No, it's not there. It doesn't say that the land had peace after Jephthah. Jephthah does not bring any real peace. He's a flawed deliverer. You see why? Because there is no more enemy, yes? But the f- fellow brothers are worse than the enemy. And the solution is worse than the problem. So it makes us look forward to a greater and better saviour to come. We see no hope in the judge's system. And so we long for and we yearn for something better. So the judges point us to a more perfect saviour, that is Jesus Christ, who is God's ultimate saviour and judge. Jesus is the one who delivers his people from the worst enemies of all, which is sin and judgment and death. Jesus makes no rash vow but he fully trusts and submits his will to the Father. And Jesus does not slaughter his brothers but he lays down his life for his brothers. And so the application here is for us to trust in Jesus and be saved. And secondly, we learn the depth of our sin. We learn what our hearts are really like. How fickle and how forgetful we are as people. Our hearts are so deceitful, we can justify, we are good at covering up our sins. Our repentance can be so shallow. Our obedience can be so superficial. And even when we are crying out to God, sometimes we could just be trying to manipulate Him to get what we want. And our attitude to God is, don't call me, I'll call you. Isn't it? We want God just to be a means to our own ends. And we only want God there on standby for us when we need Him in the bad times. So let us repent and sincerely turn to God. Let's put away all the idols of our hearts, whatever they may be. Could be success or prosperity or pleasure or sex, whatever it may be. Turn away from idols. Stop thinking like the pagans. Stop trying to relate to God on your own terms. Stop treating God like a lucky charm. And receive instead His, His grace by faith, by obedience. Stop pushing your own agenda and seek God's will and submit yourself to God. And lastly, we learn that God is amazingly gracious and compassionate. Yes, he hates sin, and he demands repentance, but when we are truly repentant, we can be sure that God will forgive and restore us. No, we mustn't take his grace or his mercy for granted, but we must, uh, and we must never try to manipulate God. But we don't have to despair. We don't have to shrink away from God. Instead, we can have confidence in him. Even though we are unworthy, we know that God loves us. God wants us to be His. God accepts us if we come in repentance, trusting in His goodness. And God's grace and compassion is supremely shown in Jesus Christ, His Son. So let us trust in Him and He will save us and He will lead us into His eternal kingdom. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Father, We praise and thank you, for you are a great God of holiness, and yet also a God of love, compassion, and mercy. You do not treat us as our sins deserve, but your purposes for us are always good. We thank you for Jesus Christ, the perfect deliverer, the just judge, the compassionate shepherd of his people. He and he alone is our salvation. Please cleanse us of our wickedness and purify our hearts from sin. And help us not to foolishly think that we can bank on your mercy, we can take your patience for granted, but help us to truly repent, to receive your grace with trust and obedience and to relate to you on your terms. And thank you that we can enter your presence with confidence by the blood of Jesus. And so help us to draw near to you with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith today and every day until the Lord Jesus returns. We pray in his name. Amen.